0: Thomas Watson, the English Puritan, said this in one of his discourses. <clears throat> Evil thoughts are continually arising out of our hearts. As sparks out of a furnace, sin keeps house with us, whether we will or not. The best saint alive is troubled with inmates, though he forsakes his sins, yet his sins will not forsake him. For in Psalm 141 falls right in the middle of the last collection of the Davidic Psalms in the Psalter. David, the ancient king of Israel, that, that God brought from the fields, where he fought lions and bears and wolves. To defend his sheep, God called up to fight Goliath and to ultimately defend and shepherd God's people. But we know that in David's life there were multiple times when he was either being pursued by the hand of enemies who literally wanted to see David dead or those who slandered him or derided him. So I believe this psalm was probably written with that background in mind or with more specifically 1 Samuel chapter 24 to 26 somewhere in that range. So when David and his men were in the heat of getting chased by Saul who was seeking his life. Now that's it's an estimate but we think that that's what was happening. But either way it's clear that David was experiencing some extreme difficulty while writing this psalm. And because of that difficulty, this psalm is a lament to the Lord. It's a prayer, but it's a lament to the Lord for the trials that he was facing in his life. So I would ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 141. Psalm 141, if you have one of the few Bibles in front of you, or the, um, the little chair Bibles there, that is found on page 301, so you can turn there and find that. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, you can have that Bible. Just consider it a gift from our church to you. And we're going to read the passage together, and then we will dive in. Psalm 141 reads this way. "O Lord. I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you, let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth, keep watch over the door of my lips, do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds. In company with men who work iniquity. And let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord. In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. This is God's word. Beloved, this psalm addresses the topic of evil. Evil. There's no guessing whether or not evil exists in the world. Many of the things Blake just mentioned in his pastoral prayer addresses that very thing. We know that because of what the Bible tells us, but also through experience. Every individual in this room has seen evil and experienced it. So what do we do? What do we do with all this evil and wickedness running rampant in the world? How do we respond to all the sin and death appearing to be unchecked, unchallenged, unopposed, and unconcerned? David asks the same questions because evil was alive and well in his day as well. Here David laments the unjust treatment he receives at the hands of the wicked and he knows that David is, that, that God is just and that their deeds, the wicked deeds, will ultimately come back to judge them. But in the meantime, David is content to fix his eyes on the Lord and let the wicked fall into their own nets. The urgency of this prayer is evident because David feels the oppression of the wicked and the impending pressure of death approaching. So friends, we, as God's people, should urgently and dependently call on the Lord in prayer so that the Lord would help us overcome sin in ourselves. That the Lord would help us have endurance for evil in this world. And so that we might find refuge in God, escaping the snares of the wicked. So during our time together this morning, I have four main points. Four main points as, as we go through this text. They're overarching points. I'll have other points, subpoints underneath each one. But the first point is this. The people of God must depend on God. The people of God must depend on God. And that's verses 1 and 2. Point number 2, the people of God desire purity from the heart. The people of God desire purity from the heart. And that's verses 3 through 5, for the beginning of verse 5. Point number three, the people of God despise all forms of evil. The people of God despise all forms of evil. That is verse 5b, or the last part of 5, and through verse 7. And then point number four, the people of God find refuge in God who defends them. The people of God find refuge in God who defends them. And that's verses 8 through 10. So let's address the first one. Point number one, people, the people of God must depend on God. So read verses 1 and 2 with me again. The text says, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. David tells the Lord from the beginning what he desires from the Lord. That the Lord would hear him and would make his presence known to him. Not only that, but it's, it's also communicated with urgency. Urgency. You see they right in the text in verse 1, it says, O Lord, I call upon you, hasten to me. Hasten to me. Again, he repeats the same urgency in the second half of the verse. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. So in telling the Lord what he, what he wants from the Lord, he says it with this expectancy, this urgency for the Lord to answer. Hasten to me. The desire of any child is that they would have both the presence of their parents and their ear. Maybe you remember a time in your life when you lost your parents. Kids, kids, have you ever been in a situation where you turned around and your, and your parents weren't there? Now, parents, maybe you remember a time in your life When something like that happened to you, and you lost your parents, you know, hiding in those little round um, clothes hangers there in Dillard's or something. Now, among all the awful memories that are flooding to your mind right now, and the regrets and all those things, what happens in those situations? Well, you start looking for them, right? But you can't find them. And maybe you were the one that was lost, and you remember calling out, Mom! Mom! Dad! And you hear nothing. You hear no response. They didn't hear you, and you knew they didn't hear you. There is hardly anything more terrifying than those situations right there. Why? Well, it's because your child doesn't know where you are, and you don't know where they are. Friends, David shows that same kind of desperation, that same kind of dependence on God in this psalm. Lord, be near me. Lord, hasten to me. We know that desperation is coming from the heart, and it's showing that he's unsure about what's going to happen next. But not only does David display what he desires from the Lord, but he also reveals how he desires the Lord to hear his prayer. So, verse 2 reads this way Let my prayer be counted as incense before you, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Now, incense is all over the place in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of the Bible. And for a quick reference, you can look at Exodus chapter 25, verse 6. Exodus 30, verse 7, Exodus 31, verse 11, Exodus 40, verse 27. And there are nine other references in the book of Exodus alone. So incense is all over the place. And he gives this, this other idea of an evening sacrifice. Well, what is, what is meant by this imagery of both incense and an evening sacrifice is, well, in Exodus 29, verse 41, the text shows that the purpose behind both of these images of incense and that sacrifice was something that is pleasing to God, something that comes to heaven and is sweet to God's smell. I mean, literally the text, if you go read those, says that incense would come up as a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So in verse 2, David is fundamentally asking that his prayer, what he says in verse 3 through the end of the chapter, His prayer would be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Friends, so many churches, not just here in our area, but everywhere, will often ask wrong questions of the Bible. They might ask, what does God prefer? What does God prefer us to do? When the right question is, what has God said? God's word is not a buffet for us to choose from. It is a will we are called, commanded to follow. God doesn't lay out a bunch of options for us to choose from and say, you can choose from whatever you like. Just take it and leave the rest. No, God doesn't have preferences in the way that we do. He has a revealed will and commands us to follow. Brothers and sisters, when was the last time you asked the question, do my prayers please God? Do my prayers please God? Is what I'm praying pleasing to the Lord? Think about the prayers we pray on our Sunday evening services. So this is another thing. Come back for the evening service and you'll be able to hear some of these prayers. But remember, they're not centered on us, but on God, His glory, and His kingdom. Let me give you some examples of common prayers we prayed in this church on our, our evening services. We pray that those who serve in children's ministry would see their time serving as an eternal investment. We pray that God would bring fruit from our evangelistic efforts. We've prayed that the members of our church, those who are physically able, would attend church regularly as Hebrews ten twenty five commands us. We've prayed that we would be a servant-minded church. We've prayed that those who are suffering would not lose hope. We've prayed that we would protect the unity of the Spirit in our church. Friends, these prayers, these requests, and more are what we pray when we're gathered together on Sunday evenings. All those prayers are either directly from Scripture or based on a biblical principle. All of them. Remember, prayers like these are not meant to be mindlessly recited. Every single week or every single Sunday, evening we gather, but they should be putting vocabulary in your mouths for the rest of the week. So here's a tip. Pray the Bible. Pray the Bible. Your mind won't wander around as much, and you'll never have to guess if your prayer pleases the Lord. You never have to guess. Friends, I would encourage you, look at the scriptures and pray what they say. Friends, more fundamentally, we should be asking the question, what pleases the Lord and what takes priority in his mind? Did you know, friends, that it pleases God when you trust him? Kids, did you know that it pleases the Lord when you trust your parents? Did you know that it pleases the Lord when we trust our elders? The Lord put every one of them there. You might say, well, they they need to earn trust. Friends, you need to give it. Pray that we would be people that give trust to the Lord. And what he has said, rather than expecting God or anyone that God has put there, to earn it. Mark Brogop says in his book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. He says, every Christian has a record of God's steadfast love. Therefore, we should remind ourselves about God's worthiness to be trusted. To be a Christian means trusting in what God says and who he is. We came to faith that way. We trusted what the Bible that the Bible is true. We believed forgiveness is possible for those who receive Christ. Trusting in God's grace welcomed us into God's family. But that was only the beginning. Friends, David is about to in verse 3, pour open unleash the floodgates of his heart and his desires to the Lord. But before that, he implores that the Lord would hear his prayer and that it would be pleasing. So beloved, this is utter, deep-seated, heartfelt trust in God. And it pleases him. Which brings us to point number two. The people of God Desire purity from the heart. Read with me in verse 3 again. David says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. Do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds in company with men who work iniquity. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Let a righteous man strike me It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. In this section, David shows his desire to be rid of the sinfulness in his heart. It's very interesting that he follows his desire that his prayer pleases the Lord in verse 2 with his desire to have a pure heart in verses 3 to 5. David is living out what we know to be true from many passages, like like Psalm 24. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 6, about a pure heart and clean hands coming into the Lord's presence. In verses 3 through 5, we see this, this idea unfold in several different ways. David wisely recognizes that he faces two threats, as do we. The external threat is obvious. He has many enemies seeking to destroy him. Wickedness all around us. But the internal threat is subtle. David could be tempted to imitate them and grow to love their lifestyle. So he asks God to guard his thoughts, his desires, and his words. So here David outlines four different ways we sin or can persist in sin. The first one is with the mouth. The mouth. The second is with the heart. The third is with the hands. And the fourth is with the company, who we are around. Notice in verse 3, the clearest one, he says, Set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. The idea given here is to set a guard by by keeping a watch. They're communicating the same concept in two different ways, basically the same thing. But David doesn't really give us anything as far as the specifics about how his mouth could sin. He doesn't say, guard my mouth from slander, guard my mouth from gossip. He doesn't say that. He just says, guard my mouth. Put a guard over my mouth. Now, we could imagine those things and pull those ideas from Scripture, But this passage is not a theological treatment on the tongue or the poison of it. If you want to look more into the tongue specifically, you can read James 3 1 through 12. And I actually preached a sermon on that in the past. You can go read that. It's the longest, the Bible's longest treatment on the topic of the tongue, consistent treatment. And there are more resources that you can get. But the way David is framing it in this passage, is in reference to the oppression of the wicked. Guard my tongue in reference to the oppression of the wicked. Now think about that with me for a moment. Think about that with me. David is being chased all over the place by these wicked men seeking his death. And he could be very tempted to say whatever he wants to say about them. His mouth was something he was struggling with and may even have been tempted to say things about his oppressors. And that's why he wrote this. He's tempted to speak ill of even his enemy. So friends, whenever pressure comes into our lives, whether from the outside or something on the inside, all the evil that's in our hearts, spews out very often through our mouths. It comes spewing out. Maybe difficulty in your job. Maybe you have a coworker or your boss that you just don't get along with, and it might be causing you to gossip behind their back. And maybe even slander them. Maybe you. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's someone in your family that you just, you just don't like. You just don't like being around. And when you're not around, it's very easy to let, let poison slip out. Maybe it's your spouse, your husband or your wife. And you get so frustrated about little things they do. And you just have, you just have to talk to someone about it. You might say, Jansen, I just, I just need to vent just need to let my my mouth run for a bit. Friends, be aware that venting is often accompanied with gossip and slander. Remember, Proverbs 10, 19 says, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Beloved, pray that God would Put a guard over our mouths to keep us from speaking poorly about people that we would not even consider our enemies. But think about what David is doing. David was praying for this, speaking ill of those who were his enemies. David was praying that the Lord would keep his mouth, set a guard over his mouth to keep him from speaking ill of his enemies. Pray that we would be Christians who don't even speak poorly of people who are against us. The second thing he mentions is our hearts. In verse 4, he addresses the, the heart as the seat from where all evil comes. He says, do not let my heart incline to any evil. Friends, the main danger a Christian faces is not from the outside, but it's from within. It is not outside forces that make us evil. Our hearts are are already evil. It is not outside forces that when something begins to appeal to our senses, on the outside, friends, it is those that summon those desires that are already present, lying dormant in our hearts. That outside circumstance is simply unleashing that desire. We find that David was good at understanding his own depravity. David knew his heart was evil. He knew that from an evil heart spews wickedness and wicked words. which Which is why he prays the way he does with the earnestness that he does. And then the third thing he mentions is the hands. He says, Do not let my heart incline to any evil, busying myself with wicked deeds. This is the other expression of a heart that is pressed with the desires from the world. Remember what happened in 1 Samuel 24, 4-7? through I'm not going to go read it, but the story goes that David was hidden in a cave with Saul. His oppressor came in to that cave. And David, who could have killed Saul, simply cuts the corner of his robe. And the text says that after he just cut the corner of his robe, it says David's heart struck him for just cutting the corner of his robe. This, friends, is David's desire to not partake In the things that his enemies do. And here David shows how he holds back his hand from striking the man that the Lord actually anointed to put on the throne. Friends, all of these, all these things that he's mentioning the mouth, the heart, the hands are all showing what's really going on in David's heart. In his flesh, he actually desires to do these things. And that's why he's asking the Lord for help so he doesn't do them. I mean, the reason that he's asking for these things is not because he doesn't desire to do it. It's because he does. He wants to do these things. But he's asking the Lord to help him, keep him from partaking in the deeds of the wicked. His desire is to please God. And friends, the fourth one is the company, the friends, the people that you're around. He says in verse 4, in company with men who work iniquity. Friends, how easy it is to do evil when evil people are around you. When you're just around a bunch of wicked people all the time, how much more easy is it to do evil? David knows that as long as he remains in the company of those who work iniquity, he will continually be tempted to to work iniquity himself. But David ends verse 4 with the statement, and let my heart, or let me not eat of their delicacies. Let me not eat of their delicacies. Friends, once the heart has begun to tilt in a certain direction towards sin, actions follow. And David acknowledges that if his heart starts leaning wickedward, the next thing will be him honing his skills at wicked deeds with those who practice such things, the workers of iniquity. Desire begets behavior, which in turn cultivates what we have a taste for, what we want he does not want a taste for what they enjoy. Friends, this means that when God converted you, if you're a Christian, when the Lord converted you, you did not automatically stop desiring sin. In fact, the temptations probably became more evident in your life. Because for the first time in your life, you're starting to fight your sin, and it's hard. Did you know that wrestling with your sin is suffering in this life? When you wrestle with your sin, you are suffering in this life. You are battling your flesh each day you get up. We are battling ourselves. Against our own desires and our own fleeting pleasures that will surely lead us to hell. Think about it for a moment. Why does he use the word delicacy? Why couldn't he have used something else? Because it will appeal. It will appeal to your flesh. Remember what Proverbs, verses, or chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 say. He says, My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep Discretion in your lips may guard knowledge, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey. And her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Beloved, it is shocking how easily and how willingly We step into sin, though we know what lies underneath. We know what's going on underneath it, but we see the honey. Thomas Brooks calls it presenting the bait but hiding the hook. Painting vices in virtue's colors. Satan is a pro at it. It looks good, but it will bite in the end. We so desire the delicacy of sin that we ignore the net that's spread around it. Friends, it is delighting in a delicacy that is served on a platter of debauchery. We want the sin, and we are prideful enough to think that we can escape the nets. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean that you will stop desiring sin. But you will also start desiring the Lord, desiring to please him, desiring to follow him. So we need to to sense something here. We need to sense David's desperation. We need to sense our proclivity towards sin and our need for rescue. We need to sense that we need a guard over our mouths. We need hearts that are pure. We need minds that are pure because we don't want sin. But its lure is so shiny. Are you there this morning? Are you where David is at this morning? Are you saying in your heart, Lord, I don't want to desire the delicacies of sin? I don't want to. Help me not desire them. Are you there? Does your heart sense that desperation? your need for God? Do you desire to follow Christ but feel the entanglement of sin close behind you, nipping at your heels? If we know the desperate need in our hearts, then the desire for the Lord to purge us of that evil, purge us of that evil, should closely follow. But how does the Lord practically keep us from evil. How does the Lord do that? We desire it. We don't want the delicacies. Though it's shiny and sweet to the taste, it will be bitter in the stomach. How does the Lord do that in our life? Well, then David turns to verse 5. He continues saying there, where He stops talking about the evil ways he desires the Lord to keep him from to the invitation of the strike of the righteous man. He says, let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. Friends, these images are vivid. They're vivid. Striking. Let a righteous man strike me. Let him rebuke me. And he equates these things, these vivid images, these violent images, with kindness. Kindness. He says it's oil for his head. Friends, quite literally, he is saying that the strike of the righteous is kindness. It's kindness. If you go and read the Christian Standard Bible, you might have one in your lap. This very same verse reads this way. When the righteous strike, it is an act of faithful love. Proverbs 27, verses 5 through 6 says, Better is open rebuke than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Remember Jesus in that garden that night? Judas walks right up. And kisses him. Now, how is it a kindness for anyone to strike anyone? Well, friends, obviously he's not speaking literally here, but notice that David is drawing a contrast between the delicacies of the wicked and the strikes of the righteous. The delicacies of the wicked and the strikes of the righteous. Sin is often looks good on the outside, but there's poison underneath. The strikes of the righteous will not feel good on the front end, but it heals. Proverbs 20, verse 30 says, blows that wound, cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. Friends, Like alcohol rubbed on an open wound, it burns, but it cleanses. Oil is something that is used to anoint priests and kings, which is meant to identify them as set apart for a specific purpose to the Lord. God uses the strikes of the righteous to cleanse us from evil and to walk in righteousness. Friends, I would just encourage you, open up yourself for the righteous rebuke and seek to put away evil. But friends, what about those who refuse the strike? The end of verse 5 there, after he says what he says, he says, let my head not refuse it. Friends, maybe you're here and you're hearing all this, and you're saying to yourself, I don't need that. I don't need to be struck. I don't need the rebuke. I'm fine. I'm pretty good at just living like a Christian on my own. I'm just kind of do my Christian life thing. And friends, I just want to warn you, you probably think far too highly of yourself. And far too little of the evil in your heart. Remember, David prayed all the things, all those things in verses 3 through 4, because he knew his evil heart's desire and wanted to be purged of it. CCBC, acknowledging evil in our hearts and the world is necessary because it makes our prayers it will breed Christians that pray with conviction and resolve. It will cause us to persevere in prayer because we know that it is the means by which God accomplishes his sovereign will. And it will make us thirsty for heaven. It should make our hearts groan and moan because we are ready for the day to be in God's presence. Where there's no sickness, no bombs, no evil rulers, no miscarriages, no abortions, no cancer, no oppression, no depression. And we will be freed from hearts that desire sin. This prayer should be the cry of every one of our hearts. Lord, let not our hearts incline to any evil. Let not our hearts incline to any evil. Brothers and sisters, there is, if there is no grieving in your heart, About the evil found there, then you will not want the rebuke of the righteous because you see no need for it. You acknowledge the sin is there but don't want it gone. If you don't desire to be purged of your sin, friends, then you should probably question your conversion. Are you a Christian? And beloved, if you don't desire the strike from the righteous, then think about the strike from the wicked that Jesus took for you. Remember that he was bruised for our transgressions. That his body was stricken for our iniquities. And it reminds us that his blood was spilt for the people by the hands of the wicked. Friends, just Jesus endured the oppression of the wicked, the punishment of the Father willingly and did not sin with his mouth or his heart or his hands. Jesus took the slaps, the spits from the Sanhedrin and didn't fight back. Jesus was tempted by the devil in the wilderness ate with tax collectors, and had to bear patiently with his immature disciples every day. Why? So that his church could take that perfect record and stand before God's throne justified. It was necessary that Jesus took the rebuke Where do harmful words come from, friends? They come from the heart. As Jesus said of that evil man in Luke 6, 45, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. If our heart is corrupt, our speech and actions will be corrupt too. But if our heart is pure, our words will also be pure. But how can that be the case, friends? Since our hearts are not pure, And we've just established that. But our hearts are deceitful. Above all things and desperately sick. We need a transplant. And the only one who can give us a new heart is God. The great physician. Who has promised to do so. Ezekiel quotes and says, I will give you God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Friends, Jesus will turn away no one who calls on him in faith. No one. Turn from your sin and look to Christ. Stop choosing your sin over him. Stop refusing the rebuke of the righteous. J.I. Packer says this wonderful, this wonderful definition on repentance. He says the New Testament word for repentance means changing one's mind so that one's views, values, goals, and ways are changed. And one's whole life is lived differently. The change is radical, both inwardly and outwardly. Mind and judgment, will and affections, behavior and lifestyle, motives and purposes are all involved. Repenting means starting to live a new life. Jesus died and rose again that we can be saved from our sinful hearts and follow him. So once we're converted, how do we overcome sin? I'm going to give you four quick ways. Number one, behold Christ's true beauty. Friends, our hearts will always incline to evil unless our hearts see Christ as more of a delicacy than our sin. Our hearts will always incline to evil unless we desire Christ more than our sin. Mark eight thirty-five 35-36 says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would leave his life, would save his life, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Is Christ more precious to you than your sin? Number two, avoid the sin of laziness and apathy. Friends, this will subtly kill you. Twiddling thumbs leads to ruin. Don't be surprised if you're tempted toward evil, if you're trapped in laziness. And laziness itself is sin. Seek to steward your time as that which God has given you. Number three, run from the company of the wicked. Remember verses uh, thirteen and uh, well, Proverbs chapter thirteen, verse twenty. He says, "Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm." Have you ever been tempted to partake in evil you might see others doing? I've known people who will. Be wrestling with sin, maybe a sin of their mouth, whether slandering, gossiping, or foul language, and they don't make the connection that if they desire to stop sinning, get away from those people. Get away. Being around slanderers begets slanderers. Being around gossips begets gossips. And if you have friends that have foul mouths, if you're not saying those words now, you probably will. Malpractice produces malpractice. It is always easier to start doing something, doing sin, with your hands, your heart, and your mouth when you're in the company of evil men. No matter how costly, you might consider them your friends. Friends, no matter how how costly, separate yourself from them. They're causing you to sin. Bad company ruins good morals. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33. And number four, humbly invite the rebukes of the righteous. Friends, this necessitates many things. First of all, it implies that you're around righteous people. What does it look like? Well, join a church. Join a church. The local church is, is the outpost for God's kingdom. It's the literal outpost for God's kingdom. When God's people gather, they church. The church can't church if they don't gather. So gather with the saints each Lord's day. How will people in the church feel the freedom both to rebuke you, if they don't see you, or know you? They've gotta see you. they've gotta know you. they've gotta have a relationship with you. They're not just gonna throw out a random rebuke. Well, some people might, I guess. Second, the text says righteous people. Righteous people. Think about people in your life right now who you would consider a Christian or Christ-like example. Get around them. Leave the company of the wicked and hang out with righteous people. Say, hey, I want to hang out. Let's get some coffee sometime. We want to have you guys over for dinner. Just find ways to get to know righteous people. This requires humility and initiative. It requires desperation, and it requires transparency. Friends, and if you're here, and there are some people who are rebuking you, but you're not listening, you're not listening to that rebuke, it is revealing a lot about your heart and your commitment to Christ. Do you love your sin more than Christ? Repent from your sins. Listen to their rebuke. And trust that God is using them for your good. Trust that. Now, listen, there are some people who think they have the spiritual gift of striking. Uh, I would just say, first, you don't. And second, there's a difference between trimming a tree and cutting it down, okay? Don't cut it down. Trim it. Okay, that's what rebuking is supposed to do. It's supposed to purge evil. It's supposed to cut off the old limbs. It's supposed to prune. When we reprove one another, we need to remember that building up one another is the goal. They are your brother or sister in Christ. Treat them like it. And if you're in a situation right now and you're pursuing someone who's falling away, and you're rebuking, you're calling out, you're asking for them to come back, confess your sins, repent, turn away from your sins, and they just, they just don't. They're not. Either they're not listening to you or they're hardened in their sin. Then show your love through your persistence. And ask the Lord for patience and endurance. Now friends, there's a whole lot more you could walk through and and think through when pursuing someone who's in sin. But Nathan the prophet acted as the righteous man who was willing to strike David, to rebuke him. Who are the Nathans in your life, friends? Who are those Nathans? Maybe this afternoon, write them a quick text and thank them for those times in your life that they figuratively struck you. Or they rebuked you. Thank the Lord for striking your heart and causing conviction to come over your soul. Thank the Lord for that. And thank the Lord for putting people in your life that show you your sin. Now here David shifts. Okay, He shifts and he goes to, verse, he goes to end of verse 5 into verse 6 and 7 and he stops talking about the evil in his own heart. And he starts addressing the evil outside of him. Which leads us to our third point. The people of God despise all forms of evil. The people of God despise all forms of evil. Read verses 5, the very end of verse 5, through verse 7 with me. He says, Yet my prayer is continually against their evil deeds. When their judges are thrown over the cliff, then they shall hear my words, for they are pleasant. As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered at the mouth of Sheol. Friends, in these verses, David is showing what to do in light of wickedness in the world. What God will do to the wicked rulers of the world. And David's felt oppression. He feels oppressed. David explains that while he is going through such turmoil because of wicked oppression, he is actively praying against the evil deeds of these wicked men. There at the end of verse five, he's actively praying against it and points out in verse six how evil will be judged, and the wicked will hear his words whether they go through that in judgment in this life or in the next. And then in verse 7, we see this, we see David really come to the end of himself. And he gives a quick meditation on death and the ultimate expression of evil. Beloved, as a reaction to the evil that we know is within us, and the evil that is going on in the world, how should we react to it? We turn the TV on at home, the shows we watch, the news we watch, the sports we watch, the commercials that come on when we have the TV on, the news of the wars we get on our phones, tanks going through towns, guns being fired, and children seeing the victims, rulers calling for bombs, evil rulers, To be dropped on innocent people. Within the past few months, we've heard of earthquakes, fires taking over an entire island, killing people. We've heard of monsoons and hurricanes that have swallowed entire communities and have destroyed church buildings. Sex trafficking continues to be widespread. Good authority is abused in sinful ways. Friends, evil is all around us, it's everywhere. And that is not hard to see. And God hates it. God hates evil. So, David, voicing that same desire, prays against the wickedness of evil men. So, brothers and sisters, when we're praying against evil or evil rulers in the world, we have to remember what Jesus, our Lord, told us in Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 45. And quickly, he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Jesus goes on to say that, in that that same thing in the passage, as he goes on, that Christians are no different than the world if we simply love those who love us. But Christians are called to love enemies. To love enemies. When praying, praying against evil in the world, friends, remember these, these three things. Number one, we must pray for their salvation. Pray for salvation of the wicked rulers in this world. Pray for them. Ask the Lord to save the wicked rulers in this world. Think about what we teach one another when we are willing to give up our personal preferences for the benefit of praying for our enemies. What does that do in our own hearts? Think about the way that will affect our children when they see us praying for the salvation of wicked rulers in this world. Think about the way that will affect people that come into our gatherings on Sunday morning who do not know Christ, but they hear us pleading with the Lord for the souls of wicked men and women. We must remember and prioritize the salvation of, Of wicked oppressors. The second thing we must remember is that we must pray against their evil. While praying for their salvation, we can pray against evil. While desiring the salvation of wicked rulers in this world, friends, we can still pray Lord, stop the hands of wicked men, stop them. And friends, the third thing we have to remember is this. Vengeance is the Lord's. While we are urgent in our prayer to the Lord for both their salvation and against their evil, at the end of the day, we must rest our head on God's sovereignty. God will one day make all things new. He will eradicate evil and he will finally comfort all his people with his presence. Friends, me Philippians 5 verses or 4 verses 5 through 6, just let it just resonate in your hearts. It says let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Remember, God is in control, and God takes vengeance. So after David prays against the works of evil rulers, he says in verse 7, As when one plows and breaks up the earth, so shall our bones be scattered, at the mouth of Sheol. Beloved David is broken. His heart is shattered because of his own sin and the sin of the wicked, the sin of this world. Verse 7 is the lowest point of the psalm. From verse 3, the psalm has slowly been sloping downward. And this is the bottom of the slope. David is pouring out his heart. He is saying, I feel like a field that has been plowed or wood that has been chopped and splintered and my bones sit like dust before the grave and I only need to be swept in. Can you imagine? Notice that he's not talking about the wicked in verse 7. He is talking about himself and his people he's thinking about death he's pondering the idea of death friends when you think about death there are a few things or a few ways you can think about it i'm sure there are many more but you you might acknowledge that death death is terrible okay you might acknowledge that death is terrible but you think about death from the approach of i will do It will do me no good to be bitter, to be angry, to be sorrowful. So I'm just going to bury those emotions, tighten my belt, stiffen my lip, and bear it up. Is that you? Do you actually think that? You might take the approach of someone that bears with death by convincing yourself that there is nothing really bad about it. Death is just a part of life. And it's just the door to heaven. It's just the door to heaven. You could say there's nothing really to be afraid of. You think that if you can convince yourself that death is simply natural and there's no need to be afraid of it. Death is a part of the cycle of life. Is that what you think? Do you actually think that way? Have you ever actually thought about your view of death? If you're not a Christian, if you're in here and you are self-claimed not Christian, you might think that death is simply this this door into some kind of slumber when you pass from existence into non-existence. Is there a way you can you can actually prove that? Epicurus, the, uh, the ancient Greek philosopher, said this. What men fear is not that death is annihilation, but that it is not. See, friends, the world isn't afraid that death is the end, but that it isn't. And we haven't lived as we, have, we ought to have lived. What does death do? Friends, what does death do? When we die, death strips us from those we love and them from us. Death is not a part of life. Death is an intrusion on life. Death is an unwelcomed guest. Death is a disturbing, interrupting Invasion on life. And we should grieve death. Because death is not something we can get through with a stiff upper lip. What does Jesus do at the grave of Lazarus? He weeps. The text even says in John eleven thirty three that he was deeply moved. Jesus, who is God. God in the flesh. Sovereign. King, providential, son of God, eternally existent, uncreated, by whom all things were made and for whom they were made. Jesus wept. Friends, death was not in the world when God said it is good. Intuitively, we know that death is not the way it should be. We should have life but all die. So we should grieve when we see death. Tim Keller gives this illustration. He says, people used to rub meat with salt. And they would do that to preserve the meat so that the meat wouldn't go bad. When we think about death, Friends, we need to rub hope into our death, into our grief, so that our grief doesn't go bad. But how do we have hope? What does Jesus do when he speaks to Martha at the tomb of Lazarus? He looks at Martha. Martha who was busy at dinner when Jesus showed up to their house. Martha, who gets before him and says, Lord, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. In Hebrews two verse ten, the text says, "For it was fitting that he, Christ God, for whom all by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of our salvation perfect through suffering." For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Picking up in verse 14, he says, Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Brothers and sisters, why Can we have hope in the face of death? Because Jesus died for us. Taking the penalty of our sin, he became our representative in his death. But Jesus rose. He blew death apart. He annihilated the annihilator. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, bruised his heel on Satan's head and defeated death. Beloved, you can have hope today because Jesus destroyed death forever. We can have hope in God because God is the refuge of his people. And David ends this psalm in verses 8 through 10. Point number four, the people of God find refuge in God who defends them. David ends this psalm with his eyes on the Lord. Verse 8 through 10 read this way. But my eyes are toward you, O God, my Lord, In you I seek refuge. Leave me not defenseless. Keep me from the trap that they have laid for me and from the snares of evildoers. Let the wicked fall into their own nets while I pass by safely. The eyes are not only the organ of desire, friends, they are the organ of expectation. David is setting his hope on God, who will deliver him from evil. David mentions these evil men who set snares for him and asks the Lord to keep him from the snares they have laid and prays that the wicked would fall into their own snares. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian, is making his way up a steep path by night toward the Porter's Lodge. You may know this, this story. He comes to a place where two lions are chained on the path, on his right hand and on his left. He does not know where that they are chained. He doesn't know they're chained. And he is afraid about, about to turn back when the porter calls to him, saying, Fear not, for they are chained, and they are placed there for the trial of faith, where it is, and for discovery of those who have none. Keep in the midst of the path, and no hurt shall come to thee. So Christian presses forward, keeping On the straight path by fixing his eyes on the porter and refusing to look at the lions lunging at him from the sides. This is the image David paints. He is fixing his eyes on God as he makes his way through the dangers of this life. Jesus says the gate is narrow. And the way is hard. That leads to life. And those who find it are few. Friends, ask the Lord to purify our hearts. To guard our tongues. To keep our hands from evil. To keep us from the company of evil men. And pray that the Lord would help you keep your eyes on him. While the wicked fall into their own nets. Let's pray. Lord God, you are so good. You are so glorious. You are a refuge for the righteous. All those who flee evil can come and be defended in you. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who has defeated death. We thank you that you are a God who defeated death, lived the perfect life so that we could have life eternal. We thank you that you are the resurrection and the life. And Lord, we ask that you would keep our hearts from evil. Keep our hands, our company from evil. And the Lord, Lord allow our eyes to be set upon you and take us safely home. In Jesus' name, amen.